So we are in Psalms, in Psalm 43, which many people, part of 42, and we did 42 two weeks ago. I was so proud of this body, and there's a good way to say you're proud of your kid, you're proud of somebody who did good. That's not pride like the Bible says, God will humble the proud. That's self-pride, where you think you're something that you're not. It's not being glad for his work. and It's okay to say I'm really proud of my kid for how he handled that situation. You know what I'm saying? We get stuck on that word thinking it means you can't. So I'm really proud of my kids. Hey, I'm old enough that I could be a parent to most of you. <laughs> not all of you. You know who you are. <laughs> so I'm so, so many things I'm proud of. I hear about, I think about a person who hasn't been around or is missing who needs help or, or I know that they've been sick and I go, I got, I got to get a hold of them or something. And I ask somebody and they go, yeah, I just went and saw him yesterday or I just called them or whatever. If you've been there and you haven't gotten a call, things do get missed. You've missed things too. So give us a break on that. We're not perfect, but I'm so proud of this body. So proud of the way you embraced Anthony and Irene and their kids. I mean, I just not like, Oh, you need my approval. I'm just saying, I'm really glad to be a part of this body. So with all the, there's a lot of exhortation and, hey, here's what we need to do and here's how we need to go and here's what the Lord wants to do in us. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for who you are and for how you encourage my life. Some of you are way, I'm teaching, Bill's teaching, sometimes others will be teaching and we're telling you things that some of you know better than we do. I mean, you can't wait to teach till you know everything and are doing it perfectly. No one would be a teacher. So, are you with me? So, in the Psalms, as well as in the prophets, we find, uh, and we talked about this on Wednesday night a few times lately with the Isaiah, is um, the prophets, including the Psalms, because they're prophetic, that's why we're going slow. We keep finding verses in the New Testament to show us the connection, and we don't want to rush it. And I did, but Bill didn't want to, and then I finally accepted that, yeah, we can't rush it. So we'll see how it goes. But um, uh, the, the prophets, including the Psalms, it would be easy to say how many times must God through these prophets speak the same thing? Don't tell me you haven't said that. <laughs> if you've read through the Old Testament, you go, wow, again and again and again and again. Well, the events and the messages to the people then were not to people that were carrying the Bible, the Old Testament around with them, and it was complete. And even when it was complete, people weren't carrying Bibles. Are you with me? Think with me. God is speaking to those people in what we today call real time. We watch on a video or we watch on a screen things that are happening as they're happening, aren't we? And they call it real time. Am I correct? Real time. Well, God spoke those messages in real time to people who needed to hear them and they were spread, but he also knows that we need it now in all the multiples that comes because you read through and where you are is where you are and God reinforces things and shows you things the next time you read it a different way in a different prophet that he said the same thing to Israel earlier or another nation, it strikes you. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we're told that all scripture, talking about Old Testament then, Paul is talking about the Old Testament. All Scripture is God-breathed, all, and it's all profitable for instruction and correction and to help us walk with God. Chapter 43, 
Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And on the harp I will praise you, O God, my God. Why are you cast down on my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. This is the sons of Korah continuing, which means there's a group of people, and we don't know which specific one of them spoke each one of these psalms. It's connected clearly to Psalm 42, my soul thirsts for God. And notice that he says in this part, you're my joy, you're my exceeding joy. You can have sorrow and joy at the same time. They're together. They work in your life. You don't, the way to have joy isn't to try to find a way to remove every bit of sorrow. That isn't, you know, Paul said, we rejoice with joy unspeakable, full of glory. And in another place, he said, I have continual sorrow, Romans 9, and I have a burden that I carry. Sometimes you do both. Those who carry a burden may think, all I can do is carry this burden. Unless this burden's gone, I can't have joy. The Bible says that's not true, period. I'm going to stop there on that. So God's work in us, you know, we all want rescue, but his work in us is, above all, to cause us to want him more than just a deliverance from our troubles. Now, we could just stop right there and go on our faces and pray for three hours or the rest of the day, skip the soup and the dessert, we could just, God, would you cause me to hunger and thirst after you more than anything? It's interesting. It's quite a prayer. In verses 3 and 4, he has a spark of hope in his trouble. He has faith. And then, and then he, his faith rises. And then in 5 and 6, he gives himself some self-talk. Why are you cast down on my soul? Hope in God. And remember, he's remembering God, and, and that happens much more. You know, he doesn't say to his soul, don't be depressed because you're really special. Don't be depressed because you're a winner and you're great and you'll, you can do anything you want to do. That is not the road to getting over depression, is not going to save you. Self is not going to protect you. Self-love I know that many people say you can't love others until you love yourself. Jesus said, die to yourself. Just think about it. So, <laughs> Psalm 44, remembering. We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days, in days of old. You drove out the nations with your hand. But them you planted, you afflicted the peoples and cast them out, for they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, speaking of Israel, nor did their own arms save them, but it was the light of your countenance, because you favored them. You shined your light from your face on them, is what that's saying. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Well, let's stop for a minute in verses 1 through 3. We've heard, our fathers have told us, Israel's history that we weren't a part of about God's deliverance and God's miracle power 
crossing the Red Sea, drowning the Egyptians, victory in Canaan land, Jericho, the walls fell down, the victories. Korah looks back and remembers the story and the stories. Remember Anthony last week told us, and you'll be hearing more about how we're, we're collecting to help him in the next, in next week, but uh, how you guys have given towards that and we're going to give, and I forgot to mention that. But Anthony last week said, tell your story, you know? A few weeks ago, Bill said, tell your story. And I'm saying today, because it's appropriate, tell your story. Do you have a story? If you did not know God, and now you do, you have a story. If you didn't know God at some point, and now you do, you have a story. And if you were raised in a Christian home, but you've personally chosen to follow Jesus, you have a story. If you walked away and came back, you have a story. So um, your kids and grandkids and my kids and grandkids, if those of you that have kids and grandkids or kids, need to hear your story. They need to hear your story. Gail and I, through the years, when our kids were at home and young with us and all the way up through high school, especially in that junior high from about fifth grade to forever, you know, <laughs> I mean, to a certain point, as we have people over or we're at somebody's house and we're sharing stories. And they kind of know your, your loop, right? Your kids know your loop. You know, <laughs> this happened and then this happened and then here's what God did for us, etc. And we noticed our kids rolling their eyes as we would interact. People would tell us some part of a story. We'd say, yeah, this is how the Lord gave us our house. It was quite miraculous. We've had uh, three of our four houses have incredible stories of miraculous intervention of God that we would actually own them. And, um, uh, you know, in that story, and then about, um, you know, roll their eyes. And we kind of noticed it. So the next, we noticed it when we talked a little bit about, and the next time we were with somebody and the kids are there, they said something that led right into one of our stories. We didn't say anything. We said, that's really cool. Yeah. So we started to say something else, and they went, hey, aren't you going to tell them the story about, about X, Y, and Z? They were offended. that we didn't, They were like, they were appalled that we, aren't you going to tell them the story? We went, oh, did you want us to tell this? We never talked to them about the eye rolling. We just did that. And then they were like, yes, you should tell them that story. So don't let eye rolling, like, young people, go ahead, roll your eyes at me. I get it. But, but, but people will roll their eyes, young or old, but it doesn't mean God isn't speaking to them. So, you know, we need to tell our stories. And, 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 and so if you don't have any God stories in your life, make some. I did not say make some up. <laughs> I said, make some, but how do you do that? First, ask God to reveal to you the clarity of your testimony of what he's done for you. You're the one that needs to know it. You're the one that needs to see it first. Ask him to show you the clarity of that. Second, put yourself where God needs to meet you in 
relating to people and relating to circumstances where you're giving the Lord room to grow you. You know, how does an athlete get stronger in athletics? They exercise and work and push themselves in the gym, but also, you know what athletes do? I mean, I was a pretty terrible basketball player. So everywhere I went when I was younger with the guys and we would play basketball, I was the worst one always for a while. But I was, and I was 30 years old, but I was in good health and I knew how to play football kind of. So I kind of played football. And Rick, you can't do that. <laughs> that's not how you block in, that's not how you block out in basketball. But I played with a guy who would play with me and a bunch of guys who put up with me and taught me to play, and they were all better than me. I was the worst one on the court. But I was playing with guys who were better than me, and they made me better. And I played with one guy where we'd go out in 105 degrees in Phoenix, Arizona on an afternoon when nobody was outside because they were intelligent. And we would be on a hot cement court, and we would play one-on-one, and he would beat me every game. And then it got to where I would beat him two out of three because I was also bigger. He was Japanese and I was, okay. (laughs) But for a long time, but you know, do you understand what I'm saying to you? Weaker than you in the faith? Or do you look for people? I'm not saying don't. I'm not saying reject those people. But are you involved with people who are stronger than you in the faith? Do you look for people to mentor you and to be a part of your life? Or do you stick around with the people that you're just totally comfortable with because they don't challenge you? Welcome to not growing. That's, that's what happens. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because I could just repeat the whole thing. I like to do that. So hang out with people who are stronger than you. Hang out with whoever God puts in your life, but uh, be aware of that. Pray about it. Think about it. It's, excuse me. Third, find a way to tell So number one, let me go back. I kind of messed that up. Number one is ask God to reveal to you clearly your own testimony and help you understand it. Number two, put yourself where you have to get stretched. And number three, find ways, and this is stretching for some, to tell the story. The story. At Christmas time, people, you'd be surprised how much they'll listen. It's a big part of growing in your story is learning how to tell the story. And God isn't sitting there judging you with a buzzer, you know, to what are they when they buzz and you're done, or it used to be the gong, the gong show was right. I never watched that either, but it was like, you're out. God isn't doing that to you. You're a lot harder on yourself than he is, and maybe some people around you are harder on you. I'm sorry. But God isn't hard on you. He wants to encourage you, and your story matters as much as anybody else's. Find ways to tell your story. In verses 4 through 8, you are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you, we will push down our enemies. Through your name, we will trample those who rise against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But you've saved me, saved us from our enemies and have put to shame those who hate us, hated us. And God, we boast all day long and praise your name forever. And future victory based on the past victories of God. Confidence in God's ability to defeat the enemy are declared. And he declares that he trusts God. But then verses 9 through 26, and we'll just read them all and talk about it. But you have cast us off and put us to shame. 
and you do not go out with our armies. You make us turn back from the enemy. Those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You have given us up like sheep intended for food and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for next to nothing and are not enriched by selling them, like he doesn't get much for them. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to those all around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a shaking of the head among the peoples. My dishonor is continually before me, and the shame of my face has covered me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the enemy and the avenger. Now, that I'm going to stop there for a minute. That, that really more sounds like the condemnation of Satan that we read about in the New Testament, how Satan will, through his means of demons and through his means of just the, being the god of this world and the subconscious general flow of humanity, to just cause you to fall into a sense of guilt and hopelessness. And, and Israel failed many times, but watch this, verse 17. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. Nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, but you have severely broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. And that must be the wilderness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Awake, why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget all our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. Wow, there's a lot there. You cast us off, and you could easily look at all of Israel and their history, similar to humankind, rebelling against and suffering from their own reaping what they sowed, you know, the, the penalty of sin and the, and the sorrow of sin. But on the other hand, you have this guy expressing in verse 17, all this has come upon us, but we've not forgotten you, and then several other places. Well, this likely represents the faithful remnant of Israel. People don't know much more about this than what's right there in front of you. Except we know that in some ways there's always been the faithful remnant in the middle of Israel. Remember Elijah. When he called down fire, God sent fire and eat up the sacrifices and the prophets of Baal in, in the book of Kings. But then he runs into the wilderness and is depressed, not because not he's afraid to die. He says, just go ahead and kill me, but because all that work, all that blessing, all that power revealed by God didn't stop Jezebel and Ahab from being evil. And they were after him. It's like it didn't accomplish anything. What's the point? Elijah did. And he's out there and he goes, Lord, he says, why are you out here being depressed? And he says, because I'm the only one. And now they seek my life. And God says, you're, you're not the only one. Something Elijah didn't know. He thought he knew. His mind was clouded by his own dis discouragement. None of you have done that. His mind is clouded by his own discouragement, and he goes, I'm the only one left, and they're seeking me. They'll probably find me and kill me. Just kill me. God says, you're not the only one. I've reserved 7,000. This is in the northern kingdom of Israel. 
7,000 is a large number in that place, the Lord, in addition to Elijah in that region. There was more. There was more people who were the remnant. There's always been a faithful remnant. And perhaps like some of you who have remained faithful, even though you face great difficulty, who have chosen to honor God, yet you still face some form of persecution or tribulation or trouble or mistreatment, etc. But we all tend to, when we're there, we ask why, right? Why? That happens. Asking why, and, and Peter declares, um, 1 Peter chapter 4, I should have got mine ready. It's going to be on the screen. I'll just read it off. We got it? Okay, I'm just going to read it. I can't make my fingers work right now. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he's blaspheming, but on your part, a thief or as an evil doer or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, the purifying, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? All right, any questions? Oh, there's lots of questions, but that really speaks. Like, there it is. How am I so sure that what's happening to Korah is like what Peter's talking about? Well, I'm not 100% that I understand everything about it, but Paul quotes verse 22 in verses 31 through 39. Let's put that up. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect, which is his chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written in Psalm 44 that we just read. As it is written, as it is written, by the Holy Spirit that came on Paul as he studied and spent time alone with God, God revealed to him, here's what this chapter is describing in Psalm 45. If you get in touch with the Lord through his word, this will excite you as much as it excites me. This matters. This is through history, God said something a thousand thousand years earlier and now it's being revealed to someone who's speaking it with all this other clarity around it that speaks to you where you sit in your chair right now. And yes, I wish you were just as excited about it as I am. I really do. But I also know everybody can't be excited all the time. But you can take it seriously. 
you can make a decision to find out what the Bible is really saying to you and that it's actually speaking to you. As it is written, for your sakes we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. The people that Cindy is praying for are spoken of. People who are being persecuted this very moment And you're not being slaughtered. You're not under great persecution. But if you're in tribulation, look what's speaking to you. If you're in depression and condemnation for guilt, look what's being said to you. There is no condemnation. Who is it that condemns you? Even if you've failed, God forgives you. If you just keep going and turn to him, you'll experience who he is. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You bet I'm excited about that. Because if I was left to myself, I would have been dead a long time ago and in hell. If I was left to myself, if I wasn't dead already, I would be living a depressed life. I'm sure I wouldn't be married, and I'm sure I wouldn't have the respect and love of my children. You bet it matters to me. What matters to you? Does God's words to you, and again, I told you there's always exhortation. Some are doing much better than me, but I'm still going to say it. Does God's word matter to you? I've desired your word more than my daily bread, more than waters, he says. I don't know if I've reached that. So, as it is written, Paul sees beyond the prophetic written word to the nation of Israel and to believers in Christ. It's all right there his own life and those around him to us today. And who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and is risen. So we're going to have communion a little bit in a little bit, not too long. And you can just ask the Lord to make it as real to you as it is. Open our eyes to see it for the reality that's there. And I pray that we will experience that. So remembering God's goodness and faithfulness, we'll go there today. But it'll make our heart rejoice, but so does Psalm 45, and we're going to read Psalm 45. My heart is overflowing. It's also Korah, the group. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my compositions concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. Well, in verse 1, my heart's overflowing. It's, is Jesus the fulfillment of this? In Luke twenty four forty four, Jesus said to his disciples when they saw him, after the first time they see him, Together in the upper room, he says to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets, and what? 
the Psalms concerning me. And I think we're going to see that it's all about him. It's all about him. No grace is poured upon your lips, it says. God's blessed you. You know, the officers that were sent to take Jesus at one point by the religious leaders, the temple officers, came back empty-handed. They didn't grab him because they were overwhelmed by his words, and they said, never has a man spoke like this. Never has a man spoke like this. It says that the people and the common people in Mark and in other places heard him gladly because he spoke as one who had authority, not as the scribes and Pharisees. His words, his truth, his righteousness. And then in verse 5, your arrows, there's every part of it. Verse 5, your arrows are sharp as the heart in the heart of the king's enemy, so the people fall under you. Well, another little section of, of verses to show you the fulfillment of that. Revelation 19. Verses 11 through 16. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had the name, a name written on it that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, and white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and great captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of uh, of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered against him to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And they fail. They fail. And I went further than I wanted to. I went through verses that would take you into another journey. Forgive me. <laughs> the verses are there and they matter. But, you know, your arrows are sharp and against the king's enemies. Your, your, your right hand comes, you'll do awesome things. Verse 7, you lo- love righteousness and hate uh, wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil gladness more than your companions. That verse is directly in Hebrews 1, 8, and 9. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness, hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Hebrews 1, 8, and 9, speaking of Jesus. Verse 8, all your garments, I'm going to just go like this. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces which they have made you glad. You know, that's really interesting because in 2 Corinthians 2, it tells us that, that there's a fragrance of Christ on his people, and we can sense, those who love God sense the fragrance of Christ. Those who don't know God sense a fragrance of death. In 9 through 17, and I'll just read these quickly. I won't read quickly. I'll just read. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. 
Listen, O daughters, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Worship him. And the daughters of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven in gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. What gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought with gladness and rejoicing. They shall enter the king's palace. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. This psalm truly pictures the groom, Jesus, calling to his bride, the church. Very similar to writing in Song of Solomon. Listen, O daughter, incline your ear. Forget your own people, in verse 10, of your father's house. Some people use the Lord as an excuse to abandon the proper care and love for their family. That's actually true. There are some people that use God as an excuse because there are verses that tell you, like this, to focus on him. Other people abandon the Lord's call to serve him because of their family and their culture and their friends. There's people at both extremes. Okay. Forgetting here is a other verses, which is how you how you study the Bible. You don't take one verse and make a doctrine out of one verse. You find out whatever else it says about the same subject, and you find out what God is clearly saying as best you can. And certainly he is not telling us to abandon proper care for family in his word. However, a conscious choice to put God first. We're not to selfishly abandon anyone in our life, are we? For selfish, under uh, improper motives, we are not, you know, sometimes people use God. God has me busy because we don't really want to deal with a family. Come on. And we have people that, well, my family is telling me to do this and this and this and this, and I can't offend them. Well, I'm not so sure that you've gone on the right track. The question is, are you obeying God? Are you following his leading? And so Jesus said, he who comes to me must hate. In Luke 14, you can look it up later, 25 through 33, it's where he says it the clearest. A man, he who comes to me must hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children. And you go, what? And then he clarifies it very simply. And yes, his own life also. And that kind of tells you, put Jesus first if you want to truly follow him. And everything else has to come in line according to his will behind it. And the, here's the deal. We bought a new, our first new car was a, a 1985 Honda GLC, a Honda, Mazda GLC. Would to God it had been a Honda. <laughs> no, Mazda, Mazdas were, of the three, the Toyota Corolla, the Mazda, Honda Civic, of there it was, man. 
the, the Mazda GLC, it had a smaller engine. So when you went uphill, you almost were going backwards with a full car. It was a good car. It was a great car. Great gas mileage. And f- when you first get a new car, what do you do? Well, I'm not one of those people at all who parks at an angle, taking up two parking spaces, inviting people to key your car. You guys who do that, you're just inviting people to hate you and key your car. Park far away, but don't do the two spaces thing. That's That just will make people mad. At, I'm not mad at you. I'm just thinking, well, that guy's going to get keyed by somebody. <laughs> There's your stinking car taking up two spaces. So anyway, that's just a personal thought. Um, but, you know, I was taking care of it so well at the beginning, you know. And, no, oh, no, you can't have food in the car, blah, 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 blah. we got to clean it. And then I went to get a Christmas around it. And because I am a genius, and you've already realized this, I had a, a knife, a razor knife, and there was a, there was a little strand of something, a string or something, and I went like that to cut it off without holding it and doing this. And I just somehow my hand went slipped, and I put it in the headliner. And, you know, that car went from being so precious to suddenly less. And it just went downhill from there. So what is my point? I just wanted to tell you that story. No, there is a point. It is very difficult. It's a big difference for God to be number one in your life to number two. That's a big step of difference. Is God number one in your life? And don't expect anyone who's any teacher or pastor to tell you any different then that God should be number one in your life. Hold them accountable. Is God, Rick, is God number one? I'm trying. It is my goal and purpose, and I think I understand it. I understand it's my benefit to make God number one because when you go from number one to number two, it takes a lot of letting go of the right thing to make God number two. And so when you have, if you have a person ahead of God in your life, here's the problem. When God goes from number one to number two, it's like a big step down. Like three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Those are easy. Slide. It's like getting on a slide. Once God is not number one in your life, he can easily go to number three, four, five, six, seven, ten, twenty, thirty. It's not really numbers, it's this general flow where because see if you don't see him as number one, why do you expect anybody else you know to come to him? You should try Jesus. You should come to Jesus. He's number two in my life. And I've seen it through the years. People put their family, a relationship, a person, a desire they have. It is human. It is all of us by nature. I'm not better, but I will tell you the truth. It's a big, big mistake. And it causes you a lot of heartache. You got to hate your own life also. Meaning, you don't see yourself as most important. You see God as most important. You're willing to let go so that God can take control. And if you're struggling with this, you're, you're among friends. It's a struggle for all of us in your life, really, really. And you can't get over it unless you face it and you're honest about it with yourself and with the Lord.
And then you apply it to your decision-making. So what will you show those people you love by your life? If you make them number one, you're telling them that they're your idol. If you make a person humanly number one, you're telling them they're more important than God. And then why would they follow God from your example if they're more important than God? It's the truth. It happens all the time. So what result does God declare through Korah's words? The influence for good. Verse 16, he says, Instead of your father shall be your sons, with whom you shall make princes in all the earth and generations and people to follow. It's just, instead of being just an extension of your physical heritage, you get to help be a part of a spiritual heritage that goes on from you. Even if you don't have children, if you don't have kids, there's the children of faith that you get to participate helping them find Christ. Did it take you a long time? to come to Jesus? Do you wish you had done so wholeheartedly earlier? Plenty of people are in that spot. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, rather is risen. This isn't, if, you are, if your past has caused you to not have a testimony, that people can follow in loving God first. If your past, and even to this very day, has been checkered, has been difficult, has been unclear for others, God, take the medicine that was provided from heaven for you, the cleansing power of the forgiveness of the blood of Jesus Christ. We're going to reflect and remember, you know, who is he who condemns? This is your greatest testimony is the fact that you're forgiven. My testimony isn't, look how great Rick's been. He hasn't. My testimony is God has loved me through my failure and forgiven me. The man born blind was 40 years old. And when they came and said, what?" What do you have to say for yourself? He said, all I know is I was born. Consider that a great testimony in John chapter 9, one of the best ever given. Musicians, come up. We're going to play a few songs. You'll be able to come as we often do and just receive the communion. There's, there 